One of the key books that got me into complexity science was a book written by Mitchell Waldrop called, surprisingly enough, Complexity. Now, this is a non-fiction account of the early days of the Santa Fe Institute and the birth of complexity science. And one of the key characters in the book is a man by the name of W. Brian Arthur. Now, his story really resonated with me when I read the book. He started off in engineering, then he went and studied economics. And when he was studying economics, he found it really unsatisfactory. And the reason was that economics treated the economy as if it was a system in equilibrium. And this just made no sense to Brian because he knew these systems had booms and busts and had very non-equilibrium behavior. So that set him on a journey to really try and understand the economy as a non-equilibrium system. In part two of this series, you're going to hear about the early days of the Santa Fe Institute and Brian's role there. But in this episode, you're going to hear about Brian's work on increasing returns. Now, what are increasing returns? Well, if we put them in complexity terms, they are the study of how positive feedback affects the economy. This is Simplifying Complexity, a podcast where we explore the underlying principles of complex systems. Systems that seem to defy our rational view of the world, like economies, ecologies, or even you or me. I'm forensic engineer Sean Brady, and I'll be your host. W. Brian Arthur, welcome on the show. Thank you. So we're going to go on a bit of a complexity journey, really your journey of how you got to complexity science. And for me, I really enjoy this story. I've heard this story, read about this story before, because it's one of those stories that many people who go from a very sort of Newtonian view of how the world works to a complexity view of how the world works follows your trajectory. So I thought we'd start at the beginning. You grew up in Belfast. I grew up in Belfast, went to Queen's University and trained as an engineer, an electrical engineer. So I'm very much from Ireland and from the north of Ireland. I went over to England for a year to study a new subject, operations research. It was really how to improve and optimize industry. I think that was 1966. Spent a year in England. I liked it fine, but I didn't feel totally at home there. And I wanted to do a PhD, so I applied to Ann Arbor, Michigan, University of Michigan. And my professor in England had given me a long list of universities to apply to, and he was very methodical. Ann Arbor was first because it was A, Berkeley was second, Caltech might have been third, and so on. But I was lazy. I applied only to Ann Arbor and got in. After a couple of years in the Midwest, Ann Arbor, Michigan, I transferred to Berkeley simply because it's near the sea. It's on the Pacific, not far from San Francisco. For reasons of weather and <laughs> living near the sea, that's where I wanted to be. And what did you study when you were in Berkeley? Well, when I got there, I was studying mostly mathematics and optimization theory. How do you logically program say, fleets of oil tankers, how do you schedule them? And there's millions of dollars at issue, and 
if you can improve these maybe by 5% or something, it saves an awful lot of money and used a lot of uh, mathematics and a lot of early computer science. I'd studied so much of this, probably about three years of this before I arrived in Berkeley. So I was getting restless and interested in broadening my horizon. And uh, I'd had a summer job with McKinsey and Company in Germany, in Dusseldorf. This was around 1969. And I was very much taken by their ability to look in depth at companies, the history of the industrial economy in the Ruhr area in Germany, and their ability to just sit on the edge of desks and analyze and just talk out loud about what they thought was going on in these very large companies. And I got fascinated and it occurred to me that this is basically economics. How had economies come into being? How had these firms come into being? How were they all interrelated? So I was very much taken by looking at this real economy in front of me in Germany. And when I got back to Berkeley, I had a lot of time on my hands. So I decided I wanted to take a good look at economics. And this is fascinating, isn't it? Because you started to study economics and after the real world experience in Dusseldorf, while you were studying economics, you started to find that it just wasn't quite a good fit for how you thought. The spirit of science at that time in Berkeley or other really top universities was that the language of science was mathematics. That's what it needed to be. That's what it should have been. And anything else that went before that was kind of talk or empty talk or, or, or armchair uh, analysis. So there was a major attempt going on in economics, not just at Berkeley, but everywhere to reduce everything to mathematical theorems. But I found it didn't ring true for me. You know, I was basically a mathematician at that time, so I wasn't sort of horrified by all the mathematics. It just it didn't seem very real to me. It seems to me from reading some of your stuff before that it was like the concept that the mathematics and the purity of the mathematics was more important than how realistic that mathematics was in the real world from a neoclassical economics perspective. Yes, precisely. I think that, I don't know how outspoken I should be here, but economics had made a sort of bargain with the devil. Well, if we take a truly, truly difficult and complicated set of circumstances, or even a fairly simple one, the basic economy of salmon fishing, say, traditionally in Alaska. Um, we can't really analyze that because it's full of human deeds, human actions, human emotions, and all sorts of interactions and change. And so they made a bargain implicitly we won't look at this humanistically. We won't look at it historically. We won't look at it as interacting, complicated system. What we will do is we will get a simplified, logical caricature of the situation, and we will use logic and mathematics to analyze that. We won't look at the real world. We look at a simplified, logical 
version of it. Physics had made some similar bargain. Physicists don't look at hugely complicated interacting systems. They take terribly simple systems. We will imagine one atom and we will look at different quantum states. We will imagine everything consists of hydrogen atoms. So that was the way science worked. And I think economics justified itself in doing something very similar. If you can't solve the whole thing in any complication, you reduce the complication and see what you can get your mind around. I think what's so powerful about the situation I think you find yourself in is that we, any of us who are in professions, deal with models of the world. And at a certain point, I think we all get to the place where we go, hmm, this model is not quite cutting it. It's this Newtonian model is not quite explaining everything. And I think particularly when we get to things like companies and anything that involves humans, it's really, really difficult for us to capture that in the equations. And it's kind of easier to do what the economists were doing and sort of pretend it's not there. Yeah, I do think that what economics did in the, you know, we're talking about the 20th century, we're talking really about my early days in economics, and that was still as early as the 1970s, 1980s. I think economics was quite sensible in that it was trying to get the basics right. And for quite a long time, maybe 100 years or more before that time, economics had been looking at systems that were unchanging in equilibrium. There's a kind of cruel metaphor I have for this that if economists are a bit or were interested in how butterflies fly, assuming things are at equilibrium is a bit like catching a butterfly, chloroforming it, and nailing it to a board, and then studying the wings. The, the butterfly is static. That's a little bit mean, but there's validity to it. Economists relied very heavily on a concept called diminishing returns. Diminishing returns means the more you do of something, either the harder it gets or the more adverse it gets or the costlier it gets. Similarly, if you wanted to base the economy on coal or fossil fuel energy, the more fossil fuel you import or dig out of the ground in the form of coal, the more expensive that gets. And I think this is very right and correct. Economies then arrive at an equilibrium. There's nothing terribly deep about this. Maybe you're interested in going to the movies or watching television. If you watch enough television, you'll run out of good shows to watch or to binge on. If you go to too many movies, you've seen the best ones. And so you arrive at some sort of equilibrium, balancing, compromise. And that doesn't change that much over time. So it's that combination, isn't it, of equilibrium and diminishing returns that just produces this nice, stable system that economics believed that we could then break down with equations and understand it because it was in, in equilibrium, essentially. But what you came along with then was a concept, I know it's been around for a while, but you redeveloped the concept of increasing returns. So can you tell us a little bit of where that original interest came from in increasing returns? I'm not quite sure where it came from, but I do remember sitting in PhD lectures in economics in Berkeley, and I was struck by the fact that the professor teaching this 
always had a sentence at the end of each explanation. This is all true, providing there are enough diminishing returns on the margin. Basically saying, providing that there's diminishing returns, there's multiple possible ways to do something, then things will be in equilibrium. And that was taken as an assumption. It wasn't taken totally as the way the world worked. And I remember putting my hand up and saying, what if there were increasing returns? Because uh, meaning that the more you did of something, the better you got at it. The more you, if you're a company, you make aircraft, Boeing or Airbus, the more you make, the more you find out how to make them cheaper it gets. So there seemed to be plenty of instances like that around. So I said, what if there are increasing returns on the margin? And the professor looked a bit embarrassed and he said, well, yes, but we know that doesn't really happen very often. So we don't allow for that. So I was kind of battered away like a fly. And I sat in the lecture feeling a bit disappointed. And I, But the problem remained for me. And later became very clear. I started to imagine situations, actually, and I started to wonder what difference uh, increasing returns really made. In 1979, I was working in Austria by then, and I started to read an awful lot of nonlinear physics, and I noticed they had the same problem. In particular, I was fascinated by the work of Ilya Prigogine in Brussels, and these people pointed to situations that had increasing returns. I went to visit Prigogine in his lab in Brussels, and one of his team was looking at ants, and the ants had choices. There was some sugar solution laid out, um, maybe 10 meters away from the ant nest, and then there was another, but larger and more nutritional sugar solution laid out about as far away again. And economic theory would sort of tell you that the ants all go to, they discover which one is more nutritional and they go to that. But there are increasing returns. If some of the ants just by dint of random walk find their way to one of the dishes, they will lay down a pheromone trail and further ants will... Uh, follow that pheromone trail, and if enough ants follow that pheromone trail, it gets more and more and more interesting for ants that follow. And about 50% of the time, I was told ants went to the inferior sugar solution. So it was almost as if by chance they sort of would go and lock in on one of these bowls. So it was a very unstable situation. You start the ants out, they don't know where they're going, but they will discover one or other of the bowls. And the more they go to that one, the more they will go to that one. And uh, so I suddenly realized that these experiments I was looking at in Brussels were exactly the same problems I was looking at in economic theory under the heading of increasing returns. So a key thing about you're saying there, Brian, is that classical economics would tell us that the ants would go to the bowl with the higher sugar solution because that's where the most reward is. But what you're actually saying is you can get quite different behavior, that 
there's an element of luck into which bowl they go to first. And then because they're sort of instantly rewarded because of that and because of the pheromone trail they lay down, they're in an increasing return situation. Because more of them are going there, they're laying down a higher pheromone trail, so more of them will want to go there, thus laying down a higher trail. There's a wonderful example you used in a lecture, and I wonder, could you tell us, step the listener through it, which is, the idea that if we took an island with roads and no one had ever drove and we turned up and dumped a bunch of cars on the island and say, go work out how you want to do this, we see the same sort of behaviour, don't we? Yes. Um, the background to that example was I'd spent time in Hawaii on the one of the farthest islands called Kauai. And I remember being there when they erected the first traffic light on the island. So this was in the around about 1970-71. So I cooked up an example where I said, okay, imagine there's an island. Imagine there are roads, but nobody's been driving on them because there's no cars. Imagine that Milton Friedman is in charge of the island. So that when the cars are offloaded from ships, people get cars, and they're free to choose what side of the road they'll drive on. He's very much a libertarian type of person. And so what would happen? And assume there's no bias, all the steering wheels are in the middle and people know how to drive. So you let everything just go, you come back six months later to see what's happened, and lo and behold, you find that everybody aligns on the left of the road, or, or they drive all aligned on the right, one or the other. You can't seem to say which will happen in advance. And the mechanism is an increasing returns one. If, if enough people start to drive on the left, you're free to choose between the left and the right, but you'd be a fool. You've better chance of survival if you drive where most people are on the side most other people are driving on. So you come back in six months, there's a lot of car wreckage and a lot of mayhem and hospitals are full, but the traffic has sorted itself out and it's all driving on the left or the right. Meanwhile, let's say Friedman has half a dozen other islands, they may have aligned on the right, different island, assuming no communications. And it's fair to say this view was not widely appreciated, to put it mildly. And you talk in a lecture where you say that the West, I mean, this is all happening in the middle of the Cold War, that the Western economists didn't like it because you were suggesting that initial chance played a role in determining where the economy ended up on certain things. And then we got lock-in, which kept us there because of increasing returns. So the idea that the best idea didn't win was upsetting for them. Also in, with, in the East with the Soviet government, they weren't happy because the idea was, no, well, a top-down economy, a totally planned economy would produce the best result. And you were sort of saying the world is much more organic than that, and it will self-organize, and it will self-organize around what could be random things in the beginning, and you will get simply a way things work because of this lock-in. And I think just to throw in just for you here, if we put this back in complexity terms that some of the listeners would be more familiar with. When we say diminishing returns, we're really talking about negative feedback, aren't we? That's correct. When we talk about increasing returns, we're talking about positive feedback. That's correct, yeah. Let me back up a moment or two and say that economists had been thinking about increasing returns for at least oh, maybe 80 years or 90 years before 
I started to think seriously about them. But if you take an increasing return situation, you could say, oh, well, we might all end up driving on the left or we might end up driving on the right. Economists would have said, well, if you have increasing returns, typically you get multiple possible outcomes. So they tended to throw out the idea that there might be increasing returns, largely ignored it because they didn't like the idea of one problem, many possible solutions. What I did when I came along was to say, we're looking at things too statically. Yes, statically, there might be everyone drives on the left or everyone drives on the right. But a better way to analyze the problem would simply be to say, let's look at it as a random process or a stochastic process and simply say that we don't know what side we're going to wind up on, but we can isolate small random events. Somebody gets a car and starts to drive. Somebody else gets a car the next day and starts to drive that. We can look at these small random events and we could say this is a random process and we could use the theory of random processes to say what happens. So just to finish this thought, what I did was redefine the problem from a static one to a random one that works a random process. And as to how that was received, I wrote a paper on this in 1983. I thought it was a pretty good paper. Sent it to the top journal, American Economic Review, and it was turned down. People were puzzled. And I think nobody in the West liked the idea that you could have a process in economics that could lead you to an inferior solution. And the ideological idea was that perfect capitalism always revealed the perfect optimal solution. And I was saying something different. And the feedback you got is fascinating. I just have some of the responses that you spoke about in the lecture. The American Economic Review said, we're sorry, we can't find any technical faults in your reasoning. But this is not economics. I love that. And then the Quarterly Journal of Economics says, this looks to be rigorously done and proper, but we don't recognize this as economic theory. Yeah, I kept getting told this wasn't economics. I thought I'd have a better reception. And in fact, I gave a version of this in the Kennedy School at Harvard in 1984, and people got visibly angry and stood up and said, well, you know, if you had perfect markets and perfect insurance markets and perfect something else, the best possible outcome would be assured. And I thought that that was a sort of valid, but the pigs might fly type of <laughs> response. But what was profound about what you were saying was that for a whole community who lived that the market was equilibrium and it was in balance and it knew best and it was static, you're saying it's dynamic, it's ever-changing. What's driving that change in some cases is this positive feedback, this positive feedback maybe really just taking slight changes or slightly random events in the beginning where something gets a slight advantage or one idea gets a slight advantage over another, and you talk about this with tech companies particularly. And that one advantage, because of this positive feedback, that advantage grows and grows and grows to the detriment of the rival ideas or the rival 
companies and they just get rewarded and rewarded and rewarded because of these returns. That must have been a very confronting thing for the, the economics world to hear. Well, I remember in 1981 sitting in the hotel in Budapest with a Hungarian economist called Maria Agustinovic. She was not just a super economist, but she was politically savvy. She says, what are you working on? I told her and she stared at me and I said, do you think it's a good idea? Do you think it's valid? She says, yes, of course it's valid. And I said, what do you think? Is this going to be a, you know, a good thing? And she just looked at me with great pity and she said, they will crucify you. And they did. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, so your, your paper was written in what, 1983 and it was 1989 before it really got out? Yeah, it, so it sat there for six years, unpublishable, and eventually it got published quite reluctantly by an English journal, the Economic Journal. Americans didn't want to touch this because this was the Cold War and this seemed to be reverse ideology. When I brought the idea to the Soviet Union and talked about it in Moscow, got a similar hostile reaction because they said, Professor, this cannot happen in the Soviet Union. I said, why not? With superior socialist planning, we always choose correct solution. And I didn't believe that either. After six years, it appeared in the economic journal. And I was told this wasn't economics and it wasn't important and it ought to be stopped. So many years later, I think it's just gone over 12,000 citations. So... The, it's one of the papers. And it's completely accepted. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's accepted. <laughs> one of the interesting things which we're going to go and talk of in part two of this story is the fact that a lot of the support that came for your work came not from economists like we discussed, but it came from the physicists and it came from the biologists. And part of where that came from was through the Santa Fe Institute. And in the next episode, we're going to talk about your involvement, early involvement with the Santa Fe Institute and how these ideas got developed further into some of the complexity science we talk about today. I was told in the 1980s that these ideas might be technically valid, but they didn't really apply to anything important. Maybe we've locked into one particular typewriter keyboard. We've locked in heavily worldwide to the English language. But I mean, does this make any difference? Is it important? I realized uh, quite late in the game in 1988 that there was one sector of the economy par excellence that all of this applied to, and that was the tech sector. And I'd been working all the time in Stanford in Silicon Valley. And I began to realize that if a company, say like Facebook, got farther ahead, or PayPal got farther ahead as a payment a device or methodology, if most of my friends were on PayPal, I would need to be on PayPal. There are alternatives. But if most people are using one technological standard, it's a bit like English, then it pays me to use the same standard. And you saw that over and over again in technology. So suddenly I realized, I remember one afternoon in June 1988, I realized all of this and I thought, oh my God, 
all of the tech sector behaves this way. So suddenly this became the base theory or the foundational idea behind uh, launching products in Silicon Valley. It caught on and here in the Valley, it was accepted as how that the tech sector works differently. If something gets ahead, like Google, it tends to get further ahead. And then AltaVista or older technologies, Yahoo, possibly fall by the wayside. And so you get these very large dominant firms. W. Brian Arthur, thank you very much for being on the show. We'll talk to you in our next episode. Thank you very much indeed. And wonderful questions. Thanks for listening to Simplifying Complexity, where we look at the key concepts of complexity science with expert minds from across the world. Concepts like emergence, self-organization, adaptation, networks, scaling, tipping points, and much more. This podcast was produced by Brady Haywood and Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. I'm Sean Brady, and I'll see you in our next episode. 